You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. Good morning, everybody. Here's Annie for Showreel, our look at the Australian film industry. And today we're going to focus on a film called Lone Wolf. It stars Tilda Cobram Hervey and Hugo Weaving and is now available on. Label Direct, Vimeo, Google Play, YouTube Movies, Apple TV, iTunes Movies. It's available and it's directed and written by John Ogilvy. Uh, it's shot in Melbourne and it's all about surveillance. It's been made in a, a very interesting fashion, but uh, we'll let the uh, interview uh, speak for itself. Lone Wolf, a very interesting uh, application of a, an old story, a Joseph Conrad's story, The Secret Agent. How did you, um, how and why did you decide to conflate the uh, old story with the modern surveillance um, society that we live in? Yeah, so I started, I was watching, as we all are watching uh, these news items and the, and the surveillance, more and more surveillance kept turning up. And what was interesting to me, it was no longer the blurred surveillance where you could vaguely see someone in the shadows. And it was, it was actually now, you know, high quality for, for, um, for G, you know, just, it was, it was quality. And there was one particular case of the, a poor young man who got, Chase, I think he he took some LSD and ran around the Sydney um, Sydney CBD. Ended up getting tasered by police. That so was it. Was and he wasn't doing anything wrong. It was it, it was you know a very sad situation. But they traced him through running through the city, and I could see the fear in his eyes. And it was that you know the quality was that good. I could see that poor young man was terrified. You know, uh, and that's when I thought, oh, you can. I think I can make a narrative about that, a dramatic narrative through using surveillance. So then it was a question of what story. And um, it's actually a friend of mine who, who happened to be Polish but hadn't read uh, The Secret Agent by, uh, by Joseph Conrad. I don't him the book and he gave it back to me and he said, uh, you would make a great film. And it just went, two things went together because all the characters in The Secret Agent are under surveillance. It's a Victorian novel, of course, so they're under surveillance by Scotland Yard. Uh, it's, a, it's obviously eyeball surveillance, but it made them perfect because they're being watched. And so the shift into um, mechanical computer surveillance 
was not that tricky. You know, it was well, it, it seemed like a good match. You know, so that's that's how it came about. And, and then there's the other thing about Joseph Conrad is that there's this sort of visceral sensation that you get from the way he writes as well because you have a very strong sense of the characters involved. Yeah, and very and that particular one very filmic. When he talks about Winnie and talks about the processes going through ahead, it's often been compared to him actually referring to um, early days of cinema when he's writing it and, and the flicker. He kind of talks about the thoughts going through her head like a flickering of a film. And Joseph Conrad is a, is a modernist and he was it, it's in the public domain, of course, and, but it's one of those... It's, it's a book that... Well, his books obviously translate well to film because he's, he's a modern writer, as you say, and, and you get a sense of... You know, his introduction to, to Winnie is basically how you would write it in a screenplay. Yeah, very, very visual and uh, very lots of sensation. I must say, before we get on to the actual film itself, I was thrown back a bit to the Hitchcock film about, the, I can't remember the name of the film, but about the little boy carrying the bomb. Very famous. Sabotage. Sabotage, yeah. 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 Uh, well, that's, that, that is an adaption of The Secret Agent as well. So it's been adapted twice. Um, Christopher Hampton did a version with Rosanna Arquette, Back in the um, I think the uh, late late 80s, and then and then there was the Hitchcock one. The Hitchcock was was very formative for me. There's a scene in the oh, it's fantastic in, in a, yeah in an aquarium. It also has that great quote from uh, when Hitchcock discusses it with Truffaut in in, in the great interviews. He's uh, Truffaut suggests to Hitchcock that it's an abuse of cinematic power to kill a child on screen. And that was something that's always always stuck with me. And I thought, well, that's very that's an interest. And 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 Hitchcock agreed with him totally. He said, yes, I agree. Um, it was it was an unwise thing to do. Um, but as you know, he doesn't he doesn't literally kill a monster. He, it doesn't actually happen. You know, a bus blows it up. The implication is there. He would never do that. But I think it's an interesting how the morality of film has shifted away from that. I think that's quite... Unfortunately, we quite often see children sacrificed for a plot in films. That's not people, you know, and that's not saying it, I'm putting a judgment on that, but I think it's interesting how that's, how that's shifted away from some notion of abuse of cinematic power. Well, it's also the thing that you're talking about, which is surveillance, and the sense of privacy. Uh, this film takes it to an absolute nth degree, right into people's bedrooms and into their bathrooms and all the rest of it. So, I mean, you know, that's quite telling. But it's interesting because uh, you've decided that you're going to tell the entire story through surveillance footage, right, of all different sorts. And on a practical level, there's a whole lot of practical things I want to ask you about the writing. And mm -hmm. how and the logistics of that, and also mm -hmm. quality matching of the quality images. Match. Yes, 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 yes. Well, we can start with that absolutely because I um, because as I mentioned, um, surveillance is incredibly. Uh, I mean, in, in a, what how we've been used to seeing surveillance is as as a form of spectacle in a film. And it was always told, suddenly everything goes grainy and we know that they're being watched. And it's so moving, it, it's, the camera's always yeah, moving. It's, 
cameras moving or yeah there's there's they're being watched and it's it's long lens and, and there's something about we know something so it's like primes us like music might prime us and it's kind That's of animal but what what you do is you have up in the corners you have where they are and the timestamp and stuff like that yeah that's right. That's right. So I, I'd sort of mix that up, and we have VHS quality in the in the bookshop. The footage was run through a VHS machine to get that look, you know, which has actually become it's, it's a very nice look. It used to be a terrible look. You go video, oh, it looks terrible, but it actually it's actually really warm and soft. I really like the look of it. It's it's really quite interesting because we're so used to hard images now with digital. That sometimes, you had, particularly 16 mil, for instance, you see that and it's got a softness to it. That's right. actually um, quite, yeah, it, it, it's embracing. So, yeah, the mix, so I was, I was conscious of mixing up those a bit. And obviously we have, we have Stevie's footage on his phone camera, which once again is a, is a brittle look. That we're kind of in to push that sort of brittle nature of it in terms of, in terms of the, quality, the visual quality. But how did you make it into a film film? You know, like, because I do a lot of audio and if you make it into something, you've got to think about how the uh, the layers work together so that they don't disrupt the ear and it, and it causes an, an emotional response. And because this isn't high quality um, uh, imaging effectively, it's a different kind of approach to filmmaking, uh, you have to do something else in order to maintain the drama with this kind of yeah. Uh, imaging. Yeah, and in terms of, you took you mentioned sound, in terms of the sound, the, uh, the sound mix was going, I'm doing exactly the opposite of what I should be doing for, uh, for, a, for a film because it's record, it's record yeah, and, we, and it's, it's distorted to the point when the levels are up because it's a recorded voice. It's not trying to sell itself as a naturalistic conversation happening in the eternal present. That's what's interesting about surveillance, of course, is that it's, it's, it's a recording of the past. And it only actually exists when things go wrong because it gets taped over. So as soon as we see the interesting thing about surveillance, we don't actually have to see anything go wrong with it. We just see it on, on the news and it's, oh, something bad's happening, happened because otherwise we wouldn't be watching it. And so you have this really interesting idea that the surveillance um, frame is predicated on um, inaction because most of the time we don't want anything to happen. So surveillance is, is filming nothing and it's recording re- recording nothing and, and re- re-recording over itself because it doesn't. that's the nature of it. Whereas the, the cinematic frame is predicated on action. So you have these two sort of interesting it's the dichotomy of it where you don't you actually don't want things to happen in surveillance, which I find totally fascinating because the film is all about oh something's going to happen you know it, it, the classic sort of cowboy line it's quiet yeah too quiet you know that's what you get in the cinematic frame when you start to do it but this the surveillance frame is all about that and it and I sort of wanted that to allow that to put people a little bit on edge as well. It's like, okay, well, something's, we're only watching this. There's nothing happening, but there's a reason. There's also the thing about time. You're you're making a lot of reflection about time. Uh, There's the shot where um, Winnie is at Tennant Creek and then eventually leaves the car and the cameras, that's the other thing, the cameras are always static except for Steve's. 
and Stevie, that's another issue. The, the Stevie stuff is fabulous. But the camera's uh, static and she's walking away and I watched it very intensely. It was so c compelling where she's walking away and the uh, in the onesie suit and the tail, which is white, is moving backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards, right into the distance. It was just a fabulous piece of uh, reflection on time. Yeah, I'm, I'm so. I mean, that's that's one of those happy accidents where that that tail was pinned on, and I saw that, and it's going click, tick, 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 like as you say, like a clock. And and I was just going, just hold on, just hold it, just keep holding it until she totally disappears. You know, that was absolutely. So so there's that that time, that idea of of time sitting in time, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, which of course is what we do with surveillance. We don't expect surveillance to be to be edited and um, to be to be manipulated. I mean, we're watching we're watching raw footage when we watch surveillance. The Setting Sun Film Festival, the film festival of the West, is ten this year. Come and celebrate at the opening night at the Sun Theatre in Yarraville on Thursday, 11th of May, or catch a film, event, or activity right through till Friday, 26th of May. All Setting Sun Film Festival details and tickets are available online at settingsun.com.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a proud 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR with Annie on Showreel and we're in the middle of a conversation that I had with uh, writer-director John Ogilvie and it's about his film called Lone Wolf. It was shot in Melbourne. It stars Tilda Coburn... Uh, Cobham Hervey and Hugo Weaving and a whole ra a range of really great actors. It's now available on Label Direct, Vimeo, Google Play, YouTube Movies and Apple TV, iTunes Movies if you want to have a look. It's a fascinating film because it interrogates uh, surveillance, uh, the surveillance society we live in and the film itself is made using uh, surveillance footage, which is, you know, quite a fascinating sort of approach to filmmaking. This is the last part of the conversation. But in a way, too, uh, in order to make it into an actual feature film, uh, see, watching surveillance could be like watching uh, paint dry for, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, waiting for uh, a result. And, of course, that that is the reflections of a lot of experimental films, you know, like, you know, the picture of the camera on a wall that doesn't change, yep. Uh, yep. that sort of stuff. Uh, but that's, that's not actually the entire point of your film. It is actually a, a dynamic narrative, uh, but it's told through uh, the collected surveillance footage separate from a usual cinemagraphic camera. You must have sat down when you were doing the writing to work out where you could possibly practically expect to get footage. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So it became became a question of what what they call um, a surveillance of um, of power of surveillance of, of, of authority and um, self-monitored surveillance so it was like well I, I was thinking well I can't make a whole I don't think I can make a whole film if it's all surveillance of power you know up there on that on that angle as we tend to see it up on the 45 degree angle 
that's why stops and all yeah that. yeah every 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 week i mean it's like you buy a red car you see red cars you start looking at surveillance you see the surveillance cameras everywhere everywhere you know everywhere so uh that in itself so that's why i introduced stevie's the the idea of okay how can i have a what i would call a more subjective frame because we have this it's it's shared surveillance in that sense um where which everybody's doing around the world sharing with filming each other putting each other under surveillance willingly so so that that allowed a um just a, a juxtaposition between that and and the surveillance where you get a sense that someone's watching you under well without permission i suppose we should move on to the fact that you've got fantastic actors You've got mm. an array of fantastic actors, like the fact that uh, Chris Bunton, who's actually quite an experienced actor, who is Down syndrome. Um, not that that's the main element of him, except that in this his character that allows him to play the character Stevie, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris is a very fine actor, and um, he's the the character of Stevie is um, absolutely pivotal. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's, um, well, diagnosed, it's un- unclear, but um, he's probably um, autistic. Of course, when when Joseph Conrad wrote it, of course, that hadn't been diagnosed. But the fact that he's, he's drawing circles, it, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff with it that would indicate that the character is, is autistic, and that's, that's um, something that, um, that Chris could... Uh, that's part of part of the character. Certainly not part of Chris, of course. Uh, that's part of the character that um, that he that we have a have a, um, someone who's autistic and a worry to his older sister, of course, because she's constantly worried that he's actually you know his autism is getting getting worse, and she's trying to negotiate that as best she can. Well, the point is that the acting's very fine, and so what you've got is uh, uh, running alongside the actual way of shooting the film, you've got a uh, very strong character development. Um, so Hugo Weaving is, of course, a masterful actor, and of course so is Tilda Cobram-Hervey. Um, it was really nice to see Lawrence Mooney playing a serious actor. He, he's actually a very fine actor. And, of course, you've got Josh McConville. All of them play off each other really well. So how long was the shoot and uh, how did you get such a, a fine uh, bevy of actors? Uh, Four-week shoot and so the, 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 cool, the cool month of, of shooting, um, which it was always conceived because of the, our approach with the surveillance. It, it felt like we could. There's a lot of locations, at, at, yeah. as you, I'm sure you agree, but just that the way that we shot it enabled us to do it quite tightly. And um, I can say that they all respond to the script. You know, that's I'm, I'm great. I'm very lucky that people, you know, have had great actors responding to my scripts. And so it's, it's, it's been a gift. I've, you know, I've always worked with great actors, which has, has been, it's been terrific. And I think part of what drew them to this is uh, certainly this idea that it's almost like a play because we're not doing a lot of coverage. You know, it's basically one one shot take, one, one angle take. So it's like each scene is like putting on a, a mini play, if you like, which allows allows them to 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 be with each other, to to communicate in a way in a way that's more not that it's necessarily at a level of theatricality. It's still quite a naturalistic performances, I think, but it just 
allows them to be in the moment as they would would be on stage. So it's like, yeah, everyone, every sort of scene's in a, a single act, if you like, which I think is, appeals to actors. And also didn't have this thing of, because the surveillance frame is untidy. It's not it's not symmetrical like like a film frame. So, you know, they weren't worried about hitting their marks. Quite a lot of it, they're not even in the frame, you know, because they're not hit the mark intentionally. I wasn't ever telling them where to hit the marks, you know, where where the key light is. That was intentionally that they would be, and that also freed them up. So in terms of the staging, in terms of, of how they present themselves, they weren't always, you know, coming into the centre and being told, you know, you've got to hit that mark on the floor. I don't think we had any marks at all in the film. Which well, actually, that, that speaks to the consistency of the performances. I was really taken by a couple. There were a couple of elements, um, like the bit where Stevie, it was like going around corners. I really liked um, Stevie filming the three, the four guys, like the, they were like card players. They were card players, but it's like that. Mm. There's a, there's a, 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 a painting. Of the card players, which is very similar to, to uh, that. Paul Suzanne. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but then when his camera goes around the corner, this fluidity, and then goes back, and then he goes back again. Go, go away, Stevie. And then he comes back again because he can't not see the end bit, which is just fantastic. And then the other one that was really fantastic was when they were uh, finding the minister when he was in bed with his lover, you know, the way it moved around, it was just so, um, you could almost smell the bed sheets, you know what I mean? Like it was, <laughs> yeah. it was just really uh, fluid, that sort of, yeah. uh, it's very, very uh, tasty pieces in that, in your movie, in the editing. Yeah, and great, great once again, a great performance of Hugo going with it. This is this this man, this sort of ogre of of a minute, you know, police minister, but walking around, you know, holding his laptop, talking into the camera. Well, for us, talking to the talking, basically talking to the audience, which is that great thing, of course. Once we're talking like this, we're talking talking to to the audience. So you you kind of in a in a way breaking the fourth wall all the time in terms of this, but having a reason to do it uh, in terms of uh, conversations through through uh, Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Also, of course, the actual story and the narrative, it is shocking what happens, even though there's yeah. no blood. Like, it's actually shocking because you've yeah. built the character yeah. to a certain degree and then it then it just happens like this. It's It's quite extraordinary. You do a very good job there. Yeah, thank you. Um, and that was the point. It's... Uh, it's a, it's a very interesting novel in the sense that uh, it's often it's Winnie is the is the protagonist, but it's she's she slipped in. She's what I call a submerged protagonist, because when when Conrad's writing it, no one would read a book about a, a woman who's he got the idea of of a true event that actually happened and his heart went out to the sister and, and basically it's saying that that's why he wrote it but he had to put it under the auspices of a some sort of espionage that's what was selling so so the book is actually a bit of a trick in in a way that the film sort of follows that as well it, it's it's absolutely if you read the book closely it's absolutely Winnie's story but Conrad Verloc is the one who's doing all the mechanisms at the beginning of it. He's setting up the bomb. He's doing everything at the in the first act and very 
Lone Wolf very clearly plays in two acts. So the first act is his mechanism and her just kind of going along with it. But at one point, Hugo Weaving's character says, well, this is just a domestic drama. This is, there's nothing relevant What here. do I care about this? Yeah, keep watching. And that's the whole point. And that's actually how, how the no- novel plays out as well. It pulls you into this domestic drama because women, um, you know, this idea of women in a public space was not something that all that all that what they were doing in terms of their domestic space was not was supposedly not interested to readers. It had to be pitched like a John Buchanan, you know, thirty nine steps or you know, some sort of action happening there. So I think it's it's a really interesting novel on that level. Um and, you know, hopefully I sort of did it justice in terms of making it Winnie, sort of being clear that it's actually Winnie. I do love this idea of of a, of a submerged protagonist, and we well, well, it's also like it's a, a genre film, like the, like you're saying, but it's actually the the actual stories of the actual people. I mean, that's what the power of Conrad. I, I had a deep love affair with the Conrad books when I was, you know, like in my late teenage years. I read all of these books because they're just you can't quite grasp the actual uh, deep. Um, message that he's passing on regarding the society we live in and the, the human element within it, which is what uh, Winnie's story is about, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely about that. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's you, you read between the lines, don't you, mm-hmm. with Conrad? Is what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, he was a man. He was a pole who was writing in English, um, but he wrote such perfect English that it was like like a. I don't know, just takes your breath away. Anybody who hasn't oh. read Conrad hasn't lived. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can start with Heart of Darkness, of course, because that's, that's a novella and that's what Apocalypse Now was uh, inspired by. And that's that's a nice um, Lido pull entry into into um, into Conrad. Funnily enough, the, the secret agent, he refers to it as a simple tale at the beginning. It is so far away from being a simple tale. And, and I got a nice review from an American uh, review who said it, he, the film makes it, even though the film has, it's quite complicated to watch, it's actually much more straightforward than the novel. Uh, the novel is actually much harder to work out what's going on. So um, that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking when I was going back through all the different people who were in this film, and there's some great people in this film, and not just the ones I mentioned. Um, uh, as a um, director, you must have been a real great wrangler. I mean, because you know, this is this is difficult. Yeah, yeah that's what directors do: wrangle. They, uh, the, the, at the end of the day, they're, they're about uh, people organizing people, really. Um, uh, yeah, it was uh, you know, it was absolute joy. It's always a joy to. It's my biggest thrill was to work with actors, so that's. That that worked really well, um, and it was quite um, different setups for each one. So that so that that made it quite quite doable, and as as a sort of low budget film, that it wasn't like um, we had the same. We had groups that we were able to to schedule. Yeah, quite, to work with. Um, the other thing before I let you go is, of course, being it from Melbourne, and I, I almost thought that the bookshop was Nibs. Uh, the new international bookshop, um, but uh, then I realised that it wasn't quite the that same day, but it was really similar, uh, and also the uh, the streetscapes and stuff like that. How fantastic! 
great stuff yeah, for well, Melbourneites. So we're on Bruns, uh, Brunswick Street, uh, um, Fitzroy anyway, and when when the um, Bethany Ryan, the, the the production designer, was doing it, there's a whole row, row of adult because it's supposed to be a political bookshop, but it has adult. Adult, I was reading all the stories. It was fantastic. Well. All these people, uh, not all these people, but a number of people coming in off the street asking when's the when's this bookshop going to be open because they were they were seeing all these all these porn DVDs in the front going quite keen for when it would be open. And in actual fact, there was a scene with uh, uh, Tilda Cobb and Harvey and uh, Marlon Williams where they're doing the scene, and someone actually walked literally walks into the bookshop just off the street and which was fantastic i mean because the cameras are all there was no apparent camera the cameras are all hidden and that was of course that's the other thing that the great liberation for the actors as well they don't know so i remember doing a number of takes with the scene with tilda and and then she finally said oh that's where the camera is (laughs) so you know it's almost like a performance in the round they're not having to worry about about you know where the camera is because of course in conventional filmmaking they absolutely know where the camera is because that's absolutely what they got to hit and they know they got to hit the marks and they have to do that so that was that's very liberating i think the scene i think they both ended up laughing otherwise we might have been able to play the scene with this uh, stranger walking into the scene (laughs) that's fantastic thanks thanks for talking to me oh it's been delightful thank you very much Every year on May Day, 3CR joins communities from around the globe in celebrating the achievements of the labour movement. Showing solidarity with the struggle for workplace rights and fair working conditions for everyone. Stolen wages campaign, Black Power Union. The role of the bicycle in workers' revolutions. Working women. The transition of workers in the coal and gas industry. Climate action and union solidarity. The history of May Day and much more. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.